Hello and welcome to Our Three Cents, a podcast celebrating the finest video games of the last 30 years. My name is Jonathan Dunn and I'm joined, as always, by my childhood friend, Chris Dow. Tetris the Grand Master. And my adulthood friend, Minty Booth. Put Bob's and Dugnut in Smash. And we are discussing our all-time top 100 video games. This week we have our number 88. But before we do that, do you know what time it is? Quiz, quiz, quiz. Oh, it's the quiz. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Don't sue me, mastermind. The score is five all. So can one of you edge ahead or, I mean, odds are probably, unless neither of you get it right. Here we go. Let's okay. do it anyway. This is question 13. Ooh, unlucky for some, but who will it be lucky for? Mario Kart 64 oh, no. was the first of the series to be rendered in 3D. In the multiplayer battle mode, a player is eliminated when... Three balloons are popped. I mean, it was multiple choice, but that is absolutely correct. (laughs) Absolutely (laughs) correct. Didn't need it. So, what have we been playing this week, Chris? I have played uh, hours upon hours upon hours of uh, Tetris 99. The new Battle Royale Tetris game that we scoffed at at the time of the announcement is nothing sacred it's is... nothing sacred said minty booth <laughs> yeah as it was announced in the nintendo direct i then refreshed the eShop on my switch for the hour after the direct <laughs> uh, until <laughs> until it appeared around kind of i don't know 11 or 11 30 or something and had a few games before i went to sleep and thought yeah this is this is quite fun and then in the ensuing days i don't think i've played another game oh and obviously i'm i'm a reasonable tetris fan you might have gathered over over the time we've been talking but there is there's something really really addictive about this format uh, and generally like i'm not really a multiplayer gamer i've said before like i don't generally play stuff online but tetris 99 absolutely justifies the the purchase cost of uh, switch online more than more than any of the nes stuff which i played for you know some toes were five minutes of gradius i think and that's it <laughs> since it's come out and, and we've had to pay i haven't actually played splatoon despite the fact i used to play it a reasonable amount so this this is the first thing that's made me go yep yeah, if, if i didn't already have it i would have plonked down the, the full cost no no hassle no question yeah. absolutely in agreement it feels remarkable that in the last what's a year and a half We've had Tetris 99, Tetris Effect, and Puyo Puyo Tetris, which I can barely say at speed. Um, <laughs> but all, all three are totally different takes on Tetris. Yeah. And all three are, are just some of the best takes we've had in the last 30 years as well. Yeah, I think just you're absolutely incredible. right. I mean, again, like I scoffed at it when it was announced. I thought, that's ridiculous. But then as soon as I played it, I realised... This is uh, this mm. this is absolutely brilliant, and it it really makes me wonder why this hasn't been a part of any Tetris game before. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that it's taken this kind of obviously uh, this shift in the market towards mm. battle royale being added into everything for it to happen. And my goodness, <laughs> I'm so glad it has. Uh, I mean, I'm nowhere near as good at it as as you are. I played it a handful of times when I first got it, and sort of got into the forties. And then my uh, friend came over and wanted to see me play it. And I just had a good streak and came fourth. And that's currently my my high score. But Chris, I believe you have won two. I have won two games. As of 10 minutes prior to this recording, I, I won my <laughs> second game. Um, because it is literally on in the background at any available opportunity at the moment. <laughs> Excellent. What I think is, is really, really remarkable is that if you play kind of Tetris competitively like two player over the years... It's always been quite boring for me because if, if you play against someone who's kind of 
you know similar skill to you it works almost like basketball where you just someone gets a point the other team gets a point and vice versa because you're just sending four lines there you receive the same four back and you just essentially just you know back and forth until someone makes a mistake yeah but because this is against the whole field of people it's much more tense you, you've got kind of the opportunity at any any stage essentially you might accidentally get ganged up on by by multiple people or, or you might do the same to someone else yeah so it's, it's much quicker and the turnaround is is much i don't know faster than it is when there's only two despite the fact you're playing against 98 other people yeah it just yeah it has it has real pace real yeah, it's great. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that Mrs. Minty is quite adept at it. Yeah, well, this is this is this this game has been a revelation. I after the Nintendo Direct, I downloaded all of the available demos, which I haven't played the full game of. So I got Yoshi's Crafted World, wonderful, which was really really lovely. Very very good. Tried a bit of Damon X Machina. Yeah, I did no. not enjoy that no, at all. No. Like it's 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 an okay concept, but it just it felt just... like a real basic prototype, though. Yeah, it felt very bare and empty. Yeah, um... yeah. And I started playing just a Tetris Effect, which you know I'm lumping in with those two because it was a free download, and I was sure. like, gotta save money and all that. Austerity, Brexit, stiff upper lip. And then Mrs. Minty comes in and she's like, "Is that Tetris you're playing?" I said, "Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's like a I'm playing Tetris against 100 people, and it's like a knockout thing." He was like, I used to be really good at Tetris, so let me play the next one. I was like, oh yeah, I don't think you're going to be terribly good at it. Because she's not a gamer, or at least she wasn't, in my mind, up to that point. But she used to play it on the desktop for years and years and years. So once she adjusted to uh, the button format as opposed to like the uh, the keyboard, mm. she was, she, whoa, she was incredible <laughs> at it. <laughs> so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm happy with, uh, you know, getting 30th place or whatever. She comes in and says, like, oh, is this, how you, is this what that button does? Okay. Fourth place. <laughs> it solves all of our storage problems because um, uh, now all of our cupboards are arranged extremely tightly, depending on the shape of the containers. Excellent. I always make that joke whenever I'm packing the boot of a car before a mm. trip. I go, oh, those years of Tetris did not go to waste. It's, um, it's crazy that you're not a dad of four. I know, I know. Surprised <laughs> that anyone loves me. As for myself, speaking of games that you play on a desktop, the game I've been playing is Minesweeper Genius. Oh, yes, you did mention, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was always addicted to Minesweeper when we had a PC because it was the only, for a long time, the only game that my computer could run. You know, even Solitaire had a, had some frame rate issues if you won a game. Um, <laughs> With the old Cascade. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I was immediately thinking, okay, well, this this has got a really nice sort of aesthetic. I didn't really know much about the game in terms of how it was set up, so I had a little look at it. And basically, it is a combination of Picross and Classic Minesweeper, plus also, you know those puzzles in the 2D Zelda games where you have to walk a specific path across a floor whilst yes. covering the whole floor? Fill all the holes yes. with the rock that rolls. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. <laughs> so rather than having just a whole grid of squares, some of which have mines, some of which have numbers telling you which mines are around them, it's laid out like a Picross puzzle. On the left-hand side, you're told how many mines there are in that row, and along the top, you've got how many mines are in those columns. And then oh. you have a little Aristotle, obviously, with a broom, because he's sweeping for mines. <laughs> and you have to navigate your way from where you start to the goal 
whilst using cross-referencing like Picross, and then also there'll be sometimes indicators in the middle of the grid that say how many mines are around it, like it would have done in classic sort of Minesweeper. And it is monumentally well done. I've just visualised it with your description, and it sounds fantastic. It is It is fantastic. Whoa. It is, yeah, it, it's so well designed. There's loads of levels, and also there are loads of advanced levels, and the advanced levels really are a, a step up, and it did take me quite some time to, uh, to, to get through those, but it was never frustrating. If you stick at it long enough, you can work out where you're meant to go and it's so satisfying when you get that right and it's a it's less than a fiver and there's about you know just shy of 300 levels and at the moment there's worlds a to m so that leads me to believe that they may well add in some some extra levels in the junus of course yeah yeah so minesweeper genius proved to be the perfect antidote to a bit of a a bit of an issue that i've been having with computer games generally in the last sort of few years because my week started by me picking up red dead redemption 2 again to play and i just wasn't enjoying it and whereas i could totally appreciate the level of detail in the game and how amazing it looked and how alive the world was it wasn't fun to play yeah (laughs) i feel that this is something that has really been missing in a lot of those sort of AAA blockbuster sort of multi-million pound yeah. development titles you know i was sort of reading online thinking because i was thinking you know is, is this just me or is this actually quite slow and quite boring there are people saying you know it's it's really great because it really makes you kind of focus on the sort of the death and decay around you and the sort of the depravity of this world and it's like well that's all well and good but i could do that <laughs> watching a film yeah, and yeah. if a game's not fun to play, then it's, it's essentially playing like a, an interactive cinematic experience. I mean, most of the sort of big blockbuster games have been doing this for quite a few years. I remember when I, I first played The Last of Us, and I saw like the opening cinematic that was just stunning, like cinematic, great storytelling. But then when it came to actually play the game, the controls were all a bit clunky and, you know, you didn't sort of have any real flowing sort of freedom of movement. There was a lot of context sensitive action button going on, which I absolutely hate when it's just like, oh, press X to in Red Dead, like skin this deer and press it, hold X to do this and hold. And it's, you know, it seems more focused on finding ways for you to interact with all the, t- the smallest things. And uh, rather than you actually having a, a fun, free-flowing experience, and sort of like just mapping buttons to a movie. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. but also, they're not giving you, not really feeling like I've got much of a choice about it. Mm. So it's not like, oh, you could skin this deer, or you could go and do something else. It's like, well, it was so slow-paced that I was like, well, if I want to go and do something else, I've got to trudge through the snow, probably <laughs> stop halfway to whittle some wood that i find to warm my hands or something and it's just like (laughs) whilst i appreciate the sort of the technical level uh, that goes into making something like that it's just not fun and i had the similar sort of problem with the shadow of the colossus remake that i also i also had and thought okay i'm a bit bored of red dead i'm gonna put that down i'm gonna play another horseback game Mm. again stunning looked amazing I do sort of recognise its place in history in terms of the establishment of video games as art. But after killing about six colossi, 
I was like, this is pretty repetitive. After killing about 10, I was like, I absolutely cannot face doing this. And partly because the horse riding controls were really janky. I kept on getting stuck on stuff and wouldn't go the way I wanted it to. And the camera would just sweep around being all cinematic without any real uh, sort of concern for how hard that made it to actually control where you were going because the camera would sweep off to the left and sweep off to the right or go right down on the floor. And yeah, it looks amazing, but Mm, but it's not uh, fun to play. The horse riding gave you a bit of aggro. Oh, mate, that is wonderful. The one thing it did do is it really made me appreciate just how well made Breath of the Wild is. Mm. And even like something as polished as Skyrim had real issues with, you know, controls and the fact that you could just sort of like jump up against a mountain to climb it and uh, (laughs) enough or you could get on a horse and it would fly off or something or fall through a mysterious hole in the coding or whatever. (laughs) And Breath of the Wild was so seamless and so smooth it doesn't have to be either or. You know, Nintendo have proved that by actually having real attention to detail in how the game feels to play. Mm. And ultimately, that's what games should be about, right? Yeah. It made Minesweeper Genius stand out even more because not only did it cost a tenth of the price, it was made for probably like one hundred thousandth amount of budget <laughs> <laughs> by, you know, a team of infinitely smaller people and it was so much fun and it took up a lot more of my time and it gave me a lot more joy that's games for you i mean i'm not going to rule out me playing like those big games but if it's not fun i'm not going to wade my way through 30 hours of something so that i can enjoy the last 10 hours of something stupid i'd rather play something that i'm going to really enjoy for the whole 40 hours yeah yeah but to go back to your original question, this week my brother-in-law showed me how to emulate games on my phone, so I've been playing the Game Boy Color game, Pokemon Trading Cards. Oh, I love... I mean, it's, wow. It's yeah. a good one. That is a great game. That was very almost in my top 100. Mm. Very, very almost. In fact, you know what we should do? At some point, we should do like our top five worthy mentions, the games that sort of narrowly missed out, and I think that would be in, in my top five worthy mentions anyway enough procrastinating let's get on with the podcastinating moving on to the ian rankings <laughs> little uh, literary reference there <laughs> this week we are starting with my game my 88th favorite video game of all time is this is our first repeat <gasps> entry Whoa. Yes, I'm, I'm really excited. I'm genuinely really excited. I'm just going to jump straight in. It's Worms Armageddon. Whoa, that was Here one of go. my games. Yes, it was, man. Hey. And oh, let's hear what you've got to say about it. It was really, really great hearing your memories of Worms Armageddon, and it made me realise how different an experience I had with it. Whereas you had predominantly played it on the N64, I purely had it on the PC. Uh-huh. It was my first foray into quite a few things. Mm. Not only did I absolutely love the game and class myself as a bit of a ninja rope expert. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you was, were. I, I remember you whipping around the maps quick style. You pull in the rope really, really short so you'd get a real rapid sort of rotation going yeah. on and let go and fling yourself over the other side of the map before shooting off another ninja rope to, to control your fall. Shinobi Dunn, they used to call him. That is what they used to call me. Yeah. <laughs> but it also was the first time that I ever got anywhere near involved in 
modding a game. I definitely spent a lot more time using this third-party piece of software called The Fiddler to <laughs> adapt and create my own weapons with Worms Armageddon. And uh, I believe that me and you did this from time to time, Chris, as well. We did, yeah. You could do some sensible things and you could sort of import <laughs> your own graphics so you could make any type of weapon you wanted. If you wanted to do like a Coke can bomb or something, you could import a little icon of a Coke can and give it the properties of a grenade and it would spill hot cola everywhere. Or you could do what we did, which is basically <laughs> try and make the most ridiculously overpowered weapon as you could, like a homing concrete donkey. I think we also did some sort of like Salvation Army bazooka where you would just, just bazooka a granny at someone and it would blow up into a load of bananas because that's hilarious. I remember having some like airstrike of concrete donkeys or along those lines. Yeah, which would obviously just destroy the entire map. <laughs> well, it, it was hilarious. It was, but things like that, like total excess, I, it still makes me laugh. <laughs> like that, that sort of like, it doesn't, you don't grow out of that. It's like fart jokes. Yeah. They're funny forever. And speaking of fart jokes, I remember one of the things I used used to do because there was the skunk weapon that would chuck out poisonous gas from its butt when i realized that you could give that property to any weapon Mm. uh, you know i just have a herd of farting sheep or you know (laughs) gassy mad cow farting carpets Uh, (laughs) an extraordinary amount of fun and thinking about it and over the last week I think that that was probably where my interest in making my own games kind of came from Mm. that then Mm. led into games that me and you used to make, Chris, with uh, the Games Factory. Once you realised what was possible outside of the sort of cast iron laws of a game that you're playing and you realised those rules could be bent, that was incredibly exciting to me. Just importing my own graphics so that I could do a little caricature of my French teacher's face on a, a bomb <laughs> from Worms, I realised then, actually, if I got some software like I did with the Games Factory, I could make an entire game based around caricatures of my teachers or I think we managed to get hold of the graphics of all of the school photos somehow. We did, yeah, in, in like really compressed colour and resolution. But we, we did have a thumbnail of every student at school. And we did some sort of like point blank virtual cop style shoot 'em up game with people coming out of windows and stuff. And oh. we made a lot of very, very silly games that were mostly built around the central themes of justice, purity, and lampooning bespectacled French teachers. <laughs> <laughs> I think I can trace that back. The sort of the genesis of that interest came back to the Fiddler and Worms Armageddon. It was also the first time I played a game online. I remembered, oh, uh, not that that has ooh. much significance, because I remember trying to play against you, Chris. Obviously, this was in the days of dial-up. <laughs> a phone call would come in halfway through a ninja rope, and my parents heard me take the Lord's name in vain for the first time. <laughs> Obviously, since then, I've mined whole new levels of blasphemy with other games. So there we have it. My 88th favourite game is Worms Armageddon. Uh, Thank you, Minty, for having brought it up, first of all, because it allowed me to really think about why the game was important to me personally and allowed me to sort of dig up some of these old memories that I I may not have done if if, uh, if this was uh, the first mention of the game. If this is how we're going to handle repeats from now on, I'm really excited to hear what everybody else has to say about everything that I like. 
Moving on, we have Mr. Dow. Chris, can you please tell us what your 88th favourite video game of all time is? Okay, number 88 on my list is a combination of Life is Strange and its prequel series, Before the Storm, which is kind of cheating a little bit because they are technically two games. Um... But I don't think they can really be separated, and I will explain that in a moment. They are what I would describe as graphic narrative adventures uh, in kind of a magical, realist style. So they are episodic. The first series of Life is Strange, I think, is five episodes. And Before the Storm, as a prequel series, is three and a bit episodes. So there's kind of like a bonus episode on the end. So in these two series, you play as two teenage girls. In Life is Strange, you play as a girl called Max. And in Before the Storm, you play as Chloe, who features quite heavily in Life is Strange as well. And they're kind of embroiled in high school drama, but at the same time, they get wrapped up in other kind of wider conspiracies and plots and things that are happening to a wider cast of characters that are kind of school age as well as kind of the adults around them as well. It's, I guess, loosely based or connected to kind of the point and click genre is, is the nearest kind of through line you can take in that you would have had old LucasArts point and click games, kind of like early PC games in the late 80s, 90s. Some of those developers ended up working for Telltale, who did like an extension of that, which would eventually become things like The Walking Dead and that kind of narrative style of game. Their early releases, like early Telltale games, were essentially just point and click in, in basically the same style. And it was only when they hit on that kind of winning formula that they then basically converted everything they did to that style and then eventually went totally bankrupt, as we are in now. But this this other developer, Don't Nod, who made uh, Life is Strange, they took the best elements of what telltale were doing and kind of did their own thing a little bit the telltale games i've enjoyed some of them they're quite good to play with other people because it's kind of essentially what you were saying earlier jonathan about an interactive filmic experience yeah it's 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 less kind of active doing like you know most games would be and more about kind of making these choices for these characters and seeing how something unfolds almost like a choose your own adventure book but what what a lot of Telltale games do, like the Walking Dead ones, is you'll you'll make a choice which seems like it's going to have like real repercussions. You get kind of ominous music and a little note in the corner saying, "Oh, you know, this character is going to remember that." And there's there's never a tremendous payoff. It feels like, whereas in Life is Strange, some of the decisions you're forced to make are are really really weighty, and even if it's not something that's going to affect massively what's happening in the world, you carry them as kind of like the person who's made that choice. So the, the sort of things that as, as the episodes were moving on, I felt like I, I'd really made kind of impactful choices for these people. Season one, like the, the Life is Strange, the traditional season, the basic gimmick I think that they tried to use to set themselves apart was your character Max finds out very early on, and I don't want to spoil everything just in case you do go on to play these, but she finds out in the first episode really early that she has the ability to kind of manipulate time and sort of rewind back from events. In some cases, it means that, that, that you know, the narrative can kind of jump to different sort of time periods or, or kind of localised time periods, like significant events that might have happened that she can go back and, and kind of change or, or, you know, alter the course of. Similar to how, um, what is it, the terrible Ashton Kutcher film, Butterfly, Butterfly Effect. Butterfly Effect, yeah. <laughs> it's not good, but it, it kind of follows that sort of format. It uses that kind of that ability to kind of go back and alter the events that have already happened. Uh, sometimes for like puzzles, sometimes for to kind of progress the plot and give you choices about how you're going to, you know, move forward kind of thing. And eventually you get swept up in some really dark stuff. It's, it's really hard to explain with, without wanting to kind of give away big points that I think would lose all of their impact if you 
if you hear them secondhand. Sure. So for, for the first season, I think it's, I'm, I'm basically saying I would recommend it if you're interested in either narrative games or kind of like loose point and click style adventures. The reason I, I lumped this in with the prequel season as well, which normally I would, would have said is a separate game, is it does so much to further some of the characters that are in that first season that I think it made my appreciation of the first season greater for kind of yeah. having more of a connection with some of the people that you have already spent, say, like 10 hours with. And which is even more remarkable because the prequel was not made by the same team. Oh. There was kind of a, a, a big kind of controversy that Don't Nod basically said, we want to move on to Life is Strange 2. It's going to have different characters, different setting. It's, it's not really connected. Mm. And Square Enix, as the publishers, said, well, it's sold quite well. So we're just going to bung out a prequel and uh, just source it out to another team. And I, I was really, really dubious. Like, I, I didn't really want to play it. And then eventually I picked it up and thought, we'll give it a go. And the team, I think, really approached it with kind of the right reverence to to expand the world itself. And I think they did a, a really, really great job. The last last thing I wanted to add, when it first came out, and I, I think it's important to put just because of our age as well, there was like a point of contention. A lot of people who reviewed it criticised the way the dialogue was written as being kind of over-the-top kind of like teenage lingo. Sure. And, and felt that it was kind of written without a handle on, on like realistically what teens of that age talk like. But... For for me, as a secondary school teacher that is working with this age of kids every day of my life, it rang really, really true. The way they kind of uh, articulate themselves and the way they get fixated on certain words like hella or, or, you know, whatever they're using at the time, it felt remarkably accurate. It didn't bother me at all. And I, I don't know if it just helps because I, I have that day-to-day experience. Or or maybe I'm I'm just an idiot with no taste. Moving on, we have Minty Booth. Please, can you tell us what your 88th favourite video game of all time is? My 88th video game comes with a little bit of a build-up, I'm sorry to say, because... (laughs) Not again. Because you guessed it, I haven't played it in years! This is the title that I played on the Wii U and the 3DS, which were both a sequel to an entry from this series, which released on the Wii. Okay. It's a fighting game. Okay with many beloved Nintendo characters taking centre stage as playable characters. And uh, as you progress through those stages, you'll be able to play as those new characters once you've bested them in battle. It's Pokemon Rumble World! Uh, <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. Oh, I, yeah. I didn't know it. That, that was the gag. I didn't know it. No, oh, no. Well done. Well thank done. you. Thank you. Was this the free to play one? Yeah. But you could buy it out if you wanted to. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, like sushi, uh, it was fun in little chunks. <laughs> <laughs> and like leftover pizza, you can have a really nice time with it without having to stump up too much cash. The journey you went on was mandated by some kind of monarch, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And the friends you made along the way were fun little toy versions of Pokemon. And I think they went up to Generation 6. So when it comes right down to it, the nature of Pokemon battling is very simplistic at its core without getting into the uh, like the insane metagame. This was very much just about tight matchups. And it worked well because it was, very, uh, it was a very light and cheerful game. And it was just the sort of thing you could pick up and play in between games, which, you know, has its place. You also had a lot more control over the Pokemon that you were playing as, as well. What was the latest free-to-play Pokemon game where they're all sort of cubes? Pokemon Quest? Pokemon Quest, yes. yeah. Yeah. C- could not get on with the uh, with the battle system of that at uh. all. 
maybe the fact that I didn't enjoy that to the degree, degree that I did was born of the fact that Pokemon Rumble World was just so generous with the amount of times you could play it. I remember when we got it, because you were the one that sort of was like, oh, have you played Pokemon Rumble, Jonathan? And you were like, oh, it's quite fun. I was like, okay, I'll download it. And then I thought, oh, this is very fun. And I remember being very envious of you because at one point you had a Kyogre. I did, yes. I loved Kyogre. I wasn't envious of you having a legendary, but one of your favourites. And I never got to find mine. A Cradily. Cradily is my favourite Pokemon, and I never got Cra- to find it. Cradily. Cradilly with a with a D. Chris, it's like a fossil plant, but it's got a lion's mane, but the lion's mane is dicks. <laughs> Look it up now and tell me I'm wrong. You're absolutely right. To the point where the, the ding-dong mane, at least in the simplified version <laughs> I'm looking at now, it's like they've they actually segmented the little head as well. Like, short of having an, an actual urethra on each one. <laughs> <laughs> this is just a full necklace of dicks. It's insane, isn't it? How did it get... Ooh, yeah, oh, I've just, just got them yeah. My gosh. That is troublesome. So there we go, Pokemon Rumble World. So I had a great time playing Pokemon Rumble World. It was really nice, like you were saying, to actually have active control of a Pokemon. I was quite disappointed when Pokken Tournament came out uh, because I've all, I'd always thought that it would be great to have like a real-time battle system in Pokemon. Not, not to replace the turn-based stuff, because I love that, but so that you could battle more like it is in the TV series hmm. or in the films. Uh, similar, actually, to, say, for example, if they put all of the Pokemon in Smash Brothers, how oh, that yeah. would work. Yeah, yeah. That would be great. So obviously Pokemon Rumble World isn't that, but it was a step in that direction. And, and that was that was fun to play. And like I've said before about games like uh, Diablo, it's it's repetitive and it's process, but it's satisfying process. And it's, above mm. all fun to play you're right which is what i look for in a game we've established today and that rhymes and that wraps it up for another week if you've enjoyed this episode or indeed any of the episodes please do leave us a five-star rating leave us a review share it with your friends if you'd like to get in touch with us about anything else of interest then you can find us Uh, i'm on twitter at jonathan dunn i am still on twitter at chaz underscore hodges you can also now find us on facebook search for r3 cents like our page follow us for more updates and other random stuff and please do join us again in a week's time where we find out what our 87th favorite video games of all time collectively are yeehaw